I am an African. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Africa for Dummies show. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for uh, being with us as usual. Um, I think me and Zenge are very, very excited because of the uh, Spotify rap that we had received. Um, it's quite interesting that this is an African podcast, but to see where um, some of our listeners are coming from, it's quite interesting. I mean, uh, number one was Germany, uh, United Kingdom, uh, France, Australia, United States, and Switzerland, which is <laughs> it is quite interesting to, to, to quite see. Um, as usual, joined by the co-host with the most, Zenge. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How's everyone doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's good to uh, it's good to be back, eh? And uh, today it's not uh, it's not it doesn't happen very often uh, that you get the opportunity to meet somebody who has uh, achieved um, as many things as our guest has, and um, it's quite a uh, star. I don't know what you call it, a starstruck moment for me because I grew up watching him on TV <laughs> all the time. Uh, so. Uh, this is a it's it's really an honor to introduce our guest today we're going to be discussing quite a lot um the former pre- uh vice president of uh zambia dr nevas mumba thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much nathan and uh, zenge thank you so much for having me i appreciate being with you today uh, thank you uh thank you very much uh, again for for joining yeah so um just to start as you as we said in the beginning you know we have many different listeners from all over the world um who is uh dr nevis mumba and how did uh like what's your, how was your journey if you could just briefly uh describe it well by my, my journey is basically an African journey, and for especially for those that grew up in Africa, rural Africa, they would they will identify more with me than those of you that grew up maybe in the cities of 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 Africa. I grew up like eight hundred kilometers away from the capital of Zambia, uh, of Zambia, here in Lusaka, and uh, so I have a very humble beginning. Uh, my father, I, I, I come from a family of 12. I'm the 11th born, uh, like Joseph. And um, my father was a civil servant. I worked for government as, a, a, you know, a district administrator and also as a teacher and um, uh, inspector of schools. So he basically uh, was a civil servant. My mother was a housewife. Uh, in order to bring up all the 12 of us, she concentrated on making sure that her priority was her children. And uh, they brought us in a Christian uh, home, uh, in a place where values were extremely important. Uh, my father was a, a disciplinarian. He wanted to make sure that being a headmaster himself, he brought that um, trade in, in the house. So he never left his little stick. Uh, of course, these days, uh, teachers are not allowed to spank their children, but uh, during those days, it was uh, almost unimaginable that somebody can teach without a stick in their hands, because that you know it was part of the teaching schedule. Uh, so we grew up under very strict, uh, uh, you know, disciplinary uh, um, programs, and uh, I don't regret. And so, yes, um, I come from the northern part of my country. 
and um, I went to secondary school in one of the premier schools here in Zambia called the Hillcrest Technical Secondary School in Livingston. At uh, that time, it was one of the two uh, top schools in the country. By God's grace, uh, I, they made a mistake and managed to push me there as well. Um, so I went to school there and uh, graduated. Uh, then I went to a college to study instrumentation with the mining industry. And then after that, I received what we call a call from God to preach and um, ended up in Dallas, Texas at the Bible College there for a number of years. Uh, came back to Zambia, um, organized a church ministry called Victory Ministries and um, became a leader from 1980 of Victory Ministries, uh, which grew into an international church organization with um, dozens of churches in Zambia and many others around the world. But besides that, really, I spent most of my time on uh, national television as a, a national evangelist um, and having crusades across my country until I joined the political process uh, in which I am involved currently. But yeah, I come from a Christian background and uh, but very, very humble background. And I'm glad to see what God has done through these 63 years of my life. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. Actually, a, a funny, fun fact. Uh, it's funny how life comes full circle. I think one of my family members actually attended some of the crusades that you uh, had and actually used to tell me about how the crusades were and how big uh, they were uh, at that point. I think you're very time. popular, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's quite uh, it's quite amazing. But you mentioned, uh, of course, how you um were led to become a pastor and were at uh at the pulpit, um and um so, you know, how do you move from the pulpit to becoming Zambia's, um, vice president? Because, uh, ask this question because uh now. Uh, a lot of things are happening in terms of, you know, a lot of people are calling for a separation between uh, the church and the state or are trying, like the lines are very blurred, um, especially when you see politicians that claim to be, uh, to follow the, 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 the uh, I can say Christianity or the values of Christianity, but then on the other side are not doing uh, those sort of things. So how do you, how did that journey happen and how do you, bring the two together? Yeah, I think you have asked two fundamental questions and um, let me try to separate them. First of all, you asked me how did I move from the pulpit into the politics? And then indirectly, you've also asked or raised an issue that how do you reconcile situations where somebody claims to follow the values of Christianity, but in real life, they do not uh, you know, demonstrate that in their daily lives. So, uh, look, um, personally, my call into church work is what we call evangelism. I'm an evangelist by calling. Uh, to those that are not familiar with um, Christian lingo, that basically means, um, you know, one of the fivefold ministries that the Bible talks about. There's a, an evangelist, there's a teacher, there's a prophet, you know, uh, there's an apostle, uh, and all those are different offices within church work. Uh, my office is that of an evangelist. And really what it means 
is that I'll go into a very dark area where Christianity is not uh, exercised or even known, and I will be probably be one of the first people to take the light of the gospel to a darkened place. So I my calling is that of going to a place where traditionally uh, Christianity maybe may not have been popular, and then introduce uh, the message of Christ and what God can do in people's lives. And people respond to become Christians, a lot of them for the first time in their lives. And so that is what an evangelist does. A teacher stays at home and teaches Christians on how to live by Christian values and how to overcome daily problems. A pastor continues to look after the Christians week after week to make sure that their needs are met, their spiritual and physical needs are mitigated through teaching and preaching. So for me, my job is to take light where there is darkness. That's a very basic, dumbest way to explain it. Really that, you know, an evangelist takes light where there's darkness. Um, and so how did I end up in politics? By the same calling. I became a political leader because I looked around for the darkest area of our society. And it was clear to me that one of the darkest areas of our society and our time, it's politics. Politics, it's called a dirty game. One of the darkest areas where truth is not premium, uh, where honesty is not an issue that people aspire for. Uh, it's a place where human crookedness is demonstrated at its highest levels. Um, so for me, it was the natural place to take the values of God and the values of Christianity to that area that lacks those values. So going into politics to me was not as complicated as certain people consider it to be. It was a natural um, uh, drawing for me to go there because that's a, exactly what God called me to do to take light where it is dark. And I came to discover that the political world is where people lie, cheat, steal, and, you know, just take advantage of others. And if we don't take the light there, we don't take morality and integrity there, then the people will continue to suffer. So basically, that's how I ended up in the political process. Um, it's a long story. It's a story on its own that needs its own hour. But I think that explanation just shows you where my motivation came from. Now, you've raised another issue, which is extremely important, that, you know, people claim to be Christians, but their output does not demonstrate that. First of all, you must understand that God, the Bible says, he takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God chooses to use an ordinary human being to be his vessel and his servant uh, to proclaim his message. But that does not make that vessel perfect. That vessel has shortcomings, that vessel has difficulties and battles that he's fighting, you know, along the way. But he is called by God and separated to be God's instrument. And there's absolutely no preacher of the gospel who is 100% perfect. Not even the Pope is perfect. Um, if somebody cast a light on the Pope's life, you know, every detail, you know, people stop going to their masses, you know, because every human being has got challenges that he works through. And God works with us in order to uh, uh, release his message to the generation that uh, we are responsible for. So yes, uh, we are not perfect. No one is perfect, but God uses imperfect vessels 
in order to release his perfect word to an imperfect world. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's very uh, that's very enlightening, actually. Um, and I I picked up on one thing that you said um, in explaining why you got into politics. You talked about how it's the darkest place in our society, and how <clears throat> you you felt an urge to fix it or to to provide your own you know brand of, of renewed politics and, and and you know that type of idea. Uh, but you know, in the darkness and the treachery and the cheatingness of politics, did you experience any of it? What, what exactly, what were the biggest challenges and perhaps more crudely, what was your lowest point in your political career? Could you just put us into your mind into that time that you realized that, okay, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, like, have you ever felt any moments in your political career where you felt like, okay, I'm done, you know, let me just, uh, this is not for me. Let me just go back to what I love, back to the pulpit. You know, um, you did mention how you know politics is has a reputation world over for being uh, ruthless, uh, a dirty game, not just in Zambia but beyond, um, you know, beyond our borders. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me make something very clear. Yes, uh, everything that, that you've described about politics is true. Uh, a very um, ugly aspect of life, uh, and it's that it's that way because of people because uh, politics is an abstract. You can't touch it, you can't see it. Uh, so when you talk about politics, you're really talking about people, their basic animal behavior that gets out when they're confronted with the possibility of power. When a human being and his basic human or animal instinct kick in, and there's a desire to have power, they throw all caution to the wind. Uh, so, yeah, that, that that is the position. So when you say what were the lowest moments in your, in my, what are the lowest moments that I can refer to? And I, I don't know, it depends on what you're asking, because one would actually say there are more low, low points than high points, because you are dealing with a very um, spirit of baseness of the human person. But I think what surprised me and hurt me the most coming from the church, I came trusting that when somebody tells you something, they mean it. I came to discover in politics the opposite is true, that they'll look you into the eye and tell you what is considered truth and it's not true. And they do that in order to deceive you and in order to you know, overtake you and uh, gain advantage over you. Uh, so I think one of the most painful things that I went through uh, was deceit, you know, uh, when you're working on a program together uh, in the night, you know, some of the people are having dark corner meetings uh, to totally undo what they agreed on the previous night. Um, and then by the time you realize it, you know, it's, 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 it's a disaster. Um, and so this deceptiveness of people being unfaithful and truthful are some of the things that I've found very difficult to deal with. Um, I am always looking for an opportunity to trust someone, to believe in what they're saying. And so when you're coming from that background, you actually hurt more than those who come with no expectations. Some of the lowest moments basically was when I took over the movement for multi-party democracy through a convention. And some people worked together to try to get the party away from me using unconstitutional means. Uh, sorry, just so for our, 
for our listeners, the Movement for Multi-Party Democracy, MMD, is the former ruling party of Zambia from 1991 to 2011. You can continue. Yeah, sorry. so I I, that's helpful. Thank you. So when I won that election, um, you know, people, some of the people just couldn't put their act together. They just felt that the pastor cannot be a president of a political party as big as the movement for multi-party democracy. So the program was put in place to remove me uh, using unconstitutional means. And um, we went to court, you know, and won each time we went to court. And that's why I'm still president of MMD. But the road has been very, very torturous, uh, very, very unforgiving. Uh, and it's a very thankless job, but I'm glad that we are on it and um, our muscles have grown. Uh, we are now more focused and we are using every lesson that we've learned uh, to make sure that the future succumbs to that which God has called us to do and in, in improving the quality of life of our people here in Zambia. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I have a question regarding, you know, you reached the second highest office in the land you were essentially the spare president. You know, you're the vice president <laughs> of Zambia. Uh, yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It <laughs> just sounds funny. You're, yeah, you're the vice president of Zambia. And... I haven't heard that, I, I haven't heard that uh, of spare president. But, yes, but... We can work with that. We can work with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, technically. Uh, I heard someone describe it like that. So, I mean, it, it, it must... Is there... A sort of weight that comes on you and you know people in every profession and in every job that they're in there's the sort of um what do you call it when you have the uh when you don't feel like you're meant to be in a particular job there's a word for it there's a uh, phrase um phrase imposter was, syndrome uh, imposter syndrome yes so uh, with the weight of say at that time our population was around maybe 10 million or so people um so you have all of those people who are looking up to you and you are representing the entire country. Uh, does it ever dawn on you that, you know, why am I here? And yeah, so just generally, how, how did you personally overcome self-doubt in these positions uh, of enormous power and responsibility? You know, uh, it's a very good question. I, I think that um, it's a very humbling uh, role to play. Um, like I've given you my background, I grew up in Chinsali, you know, uh, where we never, you know, grew up without shoes on my feet and and stuff like that. So I didn't grow up in a privileged place. So to open your eyes and you are sitting in the place of being vice president of the country, and um, when the president is out of the country, you're actually acting as head of state. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I would be lying if I don't say that there's a very uh, cold feeling of fear, like, how did I get here? Can I even do this? Um, so I think that humanness is necessary uh, to remind you that power belongs to God. Um, you didn't uh, create it. It was given to you. And at some point, it will be taken away from you. Uh, and this is a point that I think a lot of uh, brothers and sisters in politics have not really wrapped their arms around to realize that power is not yours. It is actually something given to you to exercise for a period of time. Afterwards, in the same way it was given to you, it will be taken away from you. So it is important for you to always be alive to that fact. Um, did I self-doubt myself? 
I think what has helped me is my background of uh, knowing Christ as a Christian and a pastor. Uh, whenever I doubt myself, I go back to the scriptures that really, you know, explain to me who I am, what I am in God, and that with God I can do anything. So um, I think that uh, all everyone who becomes something bigger than they ever thought uh, has these flashes of fear and uh, doubting yourself. But you know, with jobs like this, uh, you are surrounded by, you know, if, you're, if you are blessed by some of the smartest people that are going to guide you. Um, and when you feel like you don't know what to do, uh, you have a circle of people that are ready to stand with you, to help you, to guide you. And as long as you can leverage on their wisdom, their intelligence and their brilliance, I think uh, you will succeed. But when you think that all the wisdom is resident in you alone as president or vice president, these are the leaders that fail to perform because God in his own wisdom refused to deposit everything in one individual. He chose to place it all over the all over the place so that we can depend on each other for moving our homes forward. In other words, you're married, you have to listen to your wife and your wife has to listen to the husband in order for the home to be managed well. It's the same with government. Um, if a president uh, believes that he can do it all by himself, he's going to fail and is going to fail terribly. Um, God places people around you for you to listen to them, to learn from them as they learn from you. So yes, uh, it was an overwhelming experience, but uh, God gave us the grace and God gave me some of the smartest people to surround me during the time I was vice president. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a really good answer. But um, yeah, just moving a little bit away from uh, Zambian politics, I think you've played uh, a huge role, not only in Zambia, but also outside of, uh, outside of the country as well. I think the most um, recent issue or the most uh, pressing issue that some of our fans also wanted to discuss was, of course, the Zimbabwe uh, August 2023 uh, election, uh, which was the second election that took place uh, in Zimbabwe after the fall of uh, Robert Mugabe. And um, your role as the SADC mm -hmm. chair caused quite a bit of <laughs> a stir, to, 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 to say it like that, uh, among the ruling party particularly. And, uh, of course, it met the applause of the uh, opposition camp. So I don't know if you could uh, shed some light on that and just uh, speak on that as well. Sorry, it's the SADC Chair Observer Mission. For oh, the sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah. Mistake, yeah. well, well, thank you so much. That's what I was going to correct. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Zenge, for helping me there. No, I was not the SADC Chair. I was SADC uh, uh, Head of Mission uh particularly for the Zimbabwe election. Uh, I'm no longer, uh, you know, the head of mission because that mission is over now. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, it, this experience that I had in Zimbabwe uh, falls squarely in line uh, with my call as an evangelist. Uh, when I got involved in, uh, the, uh, in church work, I came in as an evangelist, taking the light to where darkness was. When I joined Zambian politics, uh, my entire crusade is to bring morality and integrity uh, in politics. 
So when the president uh, of our country, President Hakainde Chilema, asked me if I could uh, represent SADC uh, in Zimbabwe as a head of mission for the election uh, this last August, I, I went there with really no uh, agenda of any form. I had never played that role at that level before, and uh, I had never led the SADC mission before. And uh, so I was there with a very open heart. The instructions given to me were clear. Number one, never as head of mission, you have 68 observers that are going to go with you. They are from the 16 different SADC countries. Uh, they came from different countries, 16 SADC countries, and I was heading that group. So this group was eventually distributed in all the provinces of Zimbabwe to do one specific job. And the job was basically to observe the election, nothing else. We didn't go there to change their constitution. We didn't go out there to uh, make people vote a certain way. We did, I personally didn't go there with any preferred candidate. Uh, that is why when I arrived in Zimbabwe, my team and I, the first call was on President Munangagwa at State House to go and listen to him on the preparedness for the election. Then after that, we met uh, the opposition leader, uh, 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 Mr. Chamisa, and uh, we listened to his story and, and the concerns that his team had. And uh, all we do and we were doing was take note uh, of what the stakeholders were doing. We eventually interviewed um, several uh, people in Zimbabwe and institutions that had something to do with elections. And, and so our job was very, very clear and easy. Observe and out of the observation, write a report of what you have observed and present that report uh, to the Zimbabwean people and to the international community. So that was the, one of the easiest things I've done because all they wanted us to do was to use our eyes and our ears and then not challenge their uh, constitution, not challenge their anything, but just make sure that they are conducting that election in accordance with their own laws that they have set for themselves. And also the, you know, the electoral act that they have uh, decided to put in place by themselves and to ensure that they are, you know, the election is free and fair for all those that are participating. And so those were our areas of concern as we watched. So after the 68 uh, observers from across the country came back to Harare and brought their reports, a team of 24 sat down to go through these reports and look at those areas that are common from all the corners of the country. And they formed the basis of the report. And in that report, uh, we praised the Zimbabwean government and, and uh, the uh, Electoral Commission for things that they did right. But we also did raise deep concerns about things that were observed, not by Nevis Mumba, by the 68 observers that went across the country. We also highlighted those things that were done in contradiction to their own laws and electoral act. And also, uh, to uh, contrary or below the standards of uh, the SADC uh, principles and guidelines on democratic elections. So for us, we had three things, uh, Nathan. Number one, we had to look at the constitution of 
of Zimbabwe and ask ourselves as observers, are these elections taking place within the confines of, these, uh, of this constitution? Two, we looked at the Electoral uh, Act of Zimbabwe. Are these elections following the prescribed uh, space on how elections should be conducted in Zimbabwe? Thirdly, we had our own little booklet, which is called Principles and Guidelines for Democratic Elections of SADC. And we compare what the report is saying from the different uh, provinces to those three documents becoming the you know, pillars around which we make determination. So when that was done, as leader of the, uh, of the SADC mission, I was given the odious responsibility to now read that report that was written by technocrats and the secretariat of SADC, helped by you know, our own drafting team uh, that comprised of people from different countries, 16 countries. So basically that's how you evolve the report. So that's all I did. I read the report and um, you know, I was very, very uh, clear about the report that it represented things that we observed on the ground. Unfortunately, uh, Nathan and Zenge, uh, the uh, ruling party of Zimbabwe, ZANU, took, took great offense after we issued our report in Zimbabwe of the election, as we had observed it as SADC. Uh, unfortunately, the ruling party found offense in um, predominantly in one sentence that said that the election of August in Zimbabwe, the 2023 20, you know, 20, uh, election, uh, fell short uh, of the international democratic standards of an election and also fell short of the SADC uh, principles and guidelines. Uh, but they have been praised for areas in which they did well, uh, especially that the election was conducted in an atmosphere of uh, relative peace with uh, absolutely no notable violence. And we gave that to them. But I think that uh, maybe it's because Sadiq has never questioned Zimbabwe before about any kind of sins that could have been committed during the, 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 the election, that they found that... Uh, you know, Sadiq, you know, did them, you know, um, deliberately did that. There was no intention to write a report that would injure Zimbabwe, all the Zimbabwean people. And to answer your question, it is for this reason that a lot of Zimbabweans, even if you go online today, welcomed our report with both hands because they said time has come for Africa to start having true reflective reports that talk about the challenges that we face uh, on the African continent. If we all hide our weaknesses and our failures, uh, our inabilities to provide the very best product for our people, when and how are we going to improve? If somebody comes to your house and says, oh, there's a, a dead rat there in the corner, please remove it, and you hate him that is exposing my filth, um, I think then you don't love yourself. I think anybody who comes and tells me there's a problem in my house and gives me an opportunity to clean it up is my friend. And I think that SADC needs to move, and I know that it happens all over the world, but I think SADC needs to, to continue uh, to be truthful uh, as that is the only way that we can improve the story of democracy 
in our region and on our continent. If we tell lies to each other and scratch each other at the back and tell them we are doing well, when our people are dying, when our people are not able to express themselves, we are doing a great injustice, not to foreigners, but to ourselves. And Zimbabwe is a brother. And uh, just like Zambia, I would not allow what I would hate to see happen in Zambia to happen in Zimbabwe, because we are neighbors and we are brothers. So what's good for Zambia is good for Zimbabwe and vice versa. So that is the story of Zimbabwe. And I'm very proud of the team that I worked with, one of the most intelligent collection of individuals and uh, very professional and um, you know, very, very proud of the team that worked with me on that election. Yeah, no, I mean, you raised a very um, interesting point about being able to have constructive criticism of other African countries. And we've just seen an example of the backlash that one might uh, receive in providing this type of criticism. And sort of the response was quite polarizing. But you also observed another election in Liberia that saw the president serve, the incumbent president lose, and now he's a one-term president, at least for now, and uh, he, we saw him accept defeat, George Ware accept defeat to Joseph Borkai, the former vice president of Liberia, and it was widely held as a peaceful transfer of power. But in the wider context of things, that's a bit of an exception right now in Africa, considering since 2021, we have had around eight successful or attempted coups, you know, in Niger, Mali, the whole Sahel belt, even if we exclude Sudan, there's a, quite a lot of coups. And, you know, you could almost draw yourself back into the 1970s and describe Africa and then describe Africa now if it sound the same, coups, military dictators, and so on and so forth. So is democracy on the whole failing uh, in Africa? Would you say it's failing because uh, of what's going on? Or do you think, um, maybe we've got it wrong. And why exactly do you think young Africans are so enthusiastic about other alternatives like military uh, um, you know, military rule? You know, you saw people running around the streets uh, waving flags of France, waving flags of Russia, you know, uh, in these uh, countries like Niger and Mali. Well, first of all, uh, you've asked two questions. Uh, let me try to address myself. First of all, I want to agree with you uh, that the Liberian election, yes, I uh, I, I led um, an observer mission there uh, under the auspices of ASA, um, a very credible uh, uh, global organization doing an excellent job in monitoring uh, uh, elections, but also doing deep research uh, on the processes of democracy on the continent of Africa. So I was very honored to lead that very uh, prestigious uh, uh, organization uh, to that effect. Um, so it was very relieving for me uh, after the experience in Zimbabwe where my life was threatened, um, that I was gonna be killed and uh, it was ugly. Wow. Uh, to go to another country where there was basically in our search uh, as we observed, there was absolutely no, you could not see any intention for anybody to rig the election. And I think maybe it's because Liberia has a very rough background of civil war. And I think the Liberians do not want to, you know, uh, play around with uh, peace um, that they, they enjoy and uh, they ensured, and we need to salute um, the president, uh, George Ware, for the manner in which he conducted himself he really put absolutely no finger in there trying to uh, 
manipulate the election. It is for that reason that a, an opposition a person actually won the election because George Ware did not try to manipulate that, at least from our own observations. And the Electoral Commission of Liberia was extremely exemplary. Uh, it was very healing to work with a country like that, which was determined uh, to ensure that the will of the Liberian people uh, was expressed at the ballot box. And um, we saw that happen. And uh, the, the results were read out. And uh, the final result, although there was a, a rerun, uh, was that uh, uh, Vice President uh, uh, Bokai only won with 28,000 votes. Uh, and yet, uh, President uh, George Ware actually considered defeat before the final votes were counted. And I think that is historic. And these are the success stories on the African continent, which is always described as a place of you know, shambolic elections and criminality, corruption. Uh, Africans are no good. They, they are always looking for, for ways to destroy themselves. It's not the, the Africa we are about to experience now. I think that Liberia, uh, has made us proud. Uh, President George Ware has also made us proud, and we salute him. And the incoming president, his tone continues to encourage us, and we pray that that country shall make great progress. But you also, Yenge uh, Zenge, raised another issue about the contrast in West Africa, where there are all these coups that are taking place. How does that relate to what happened in Liberia? And how does that speak to the state uh, of democracy on the continent? I, I, I think my own experience in um, observing elections and running for uh, political office myself as president in my country, there are many things that are at play. Democracy on the continent has been under threat for a long time. And uh, Zambia, of course, stands out as a country that gives an example of uh, you know, countries that can move uh, from one administration to the other peacefully. And so Zambia is a great success story on the continent, and we pray that it continues to be so. Um, the reason why we feel there are coups happening in certain parts of the, of the continent is that the young people are starting to lose um, confidence in the electoral processes. And that is why the report that was given in Zimbabwe by SADC and Africa Union, by the way, and European Union report were basically the same. We called out those areas that compromise the democratic process. And um, now in West Africa, we are noticing that they are realizing that democracy is not giving them uh, what they are you know, putting into that election. In other words, when they vote, their vote is stolen and they express will of the people in those countries is compromised and uh, taken away and therefore leaving very little option uh, for these younger people to say look the only way to go is probably through coups mm. that is why some of us are such big voices on uh, free and fair elections across the continent in order to forestall this lack of confidence that is now rising in electoral elections and so I think that we need to work together to try to place back uh, confidence and value in elections uh, so that the younger generation do not have to use, um, you know, um, terrible means in order to acquire political power, including military coups. I think that um, if you use military coups and you start to go in that direction, Africa is being taken back 
you know, you know, dozens of years back, and we don't need that. Time to move forward is now, and we ask all the presidents or the leaders of the African countries to respect the will of their people in order to maintain peace and stability on the continent. Yeah. Um. Just to uh, Zeng, if if you don't mind, can I uh, just uh, add to that? Um. A follow-up yeah. question would be, um, because. I think you've highlighted the importance of having um, free and fair elections and how the effect it can have on uh, a democracy, basically. Uh, but I think there's some other um, people or uh, economists that have suggested that perhaps um, democracy isn't the best model for, and just uh, this is not something Africa for Dummies is saying or anyone is saying, I'm just saying I've heard this argument before. Uh, essentially that uh, democracy isn't the best model for many African countries because um, it doesn't give enough time for sound decisions to be made in the sense that decisions are made to essentially get reelected than to actually further develop the country. So um, number one, do you agree with that uh, argument? And number two, do you think that you know democracy should still, uh, the, the way it's functioning which is five four years another election or should we come up with some sort of hybrid system or some other system that might uh take into consideration the current things that we are uh going through um yeah sorry yeah you see they uh, let me be quick here uh the americans are very clear of course they exercise democracy in elections and in other areas uh you see that they do their very best to exercise the democratic tenets uh, but they don't call democracy as a final system of governance. They actually call democracy an experiment. Though, you know, I'm a student of uh, political science uh, and I was trained in an American university. Um, uh, they call it an American experiment. So democracy is not necessarily the alpha and the omega of governance systems that are going to meet, that is going to meet, uh, you know, the aspirations of the people. I have a lot of questions on the um, effectiveness of the current system of democracy that we are using uh, to govern ourselves. The only thing we have now is that this is the system that we have all agreed on by consensus by which we govern ourselves. Is it perfect? No. Even the Americans decided they were not going to use it the way we use it in Africa, one man, one vote. Uh, they decided to go into electoral colleges, a, a college issue so that you know it's not the one with the um, uh, maximum popular vote that becomes president, but some some system that really talks to the way their community and society is 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 managed. And Africa must now come to a place where they say, "Thank you for this democracy we have used. If America can tweak it, we also can tweak it so that it meets our cultural and our aspirations as a people." And you've said it right. You know, sometimes you know this whole thing is about winning the next election. So. The quality of policies and decisions made by politicians is highly compromised because it's not to meet the needs of the people, but it's basically to win an election. So we need to integrate, you know, to, to interrogate this. And I say to the Africans, let's not be afraid to put this question on the table. Is this the best way to govern ourselves moving forward? Is five years, four years enough for a president to roll out what they believe they can roll out for their people. These are questions that need to be constantly asked in order for us to keep improving our serve.
Yeah, I think uh, that's a that's a good uh, summary, I guess, of, of of that question because I think that um, especially now, as Zengi mentioned, the things that are going on in the continent, I think um, democracy has certainly been uh, certainly been put to, to 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 a lot of people are questioning whether democracy is 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 something that, and I think the way you put it, I think we we should be able to sort of adjust and tweak it. Um, I think is something that's necessary. Um, just moving on to, I guess, another um, theme uh, with regards to, uh, we just want to get an inside view of um, politics and, and, and how it works, because I think there is a sort of like outside, inside, people don't understand how things function uh, within, I think, uh, UNIP, uh, which was the uh, first, uh, pardon me, Oh, I thought that was okay. Um, I think UNIP stayed, uh, which was the first ruling party of Zambia, stayed in power for twenty-seven years. The multi- movement for multi-party democracy, your party, stayed in power for twenty years. The Patriotic Front stayed in power for ten years, and UPND are currently in power now. Um, the question would be, why do ruling parties collapse after leaving office in Zambia, or basically have these internal disagreements? Um. Uh, after leaving office essentially we don't really see a like you know in the u.s you have these two basically two parties two party systems that keep on going and have been going for multiple multiple years but uh mm-hmm. in zambia yeah. so yeah so in zambia you sort of have or in other african countries you have well i think for most african countries the party that led them to independence is still there but with zambia's case you sort of see unip then the next one comes in then the next one comes in in the next one, but you don't really see political power staying and maybe gunning for the next uh, election. I think there are several factors, and uh, you know, they, there's need for some scientific research on this matter. We can only assume, especially that being leader of the movement for multi-party democracy, I have a hands-on, some kind of experience on this issue. Um, you know, one of the issues, and I'm not saying it's the only issue that makes these former ruling parties struggle uh, to survive after they lose uh, power. Uh, one of the issues, first of all, depends on the leadership, uh, the Superman you know, leadership, where one leader becomes almost a god. Um, and therefore, uh, once they're out of power and according to democratic uh, requirements, they step aside and another president is elected and the people just can't get over the fact that the previous leader is no longer leader. So, you know, some of those who used to eat off his hands are going to continue to push that he comes back and unsettles the democratically elected leader and try to go back into history and in the past. Um, it happened to Unip. Uh, Kenneth Kaunda stepped aside uh, and they elected uh, pre- you know, uh, uh, Kevin Sokotwane as a new president. Uh, before long, he was ousted and, and a coup or arrangement that removed him from office to replace him again by President Kenneth Kaunda. Uh, that brought, you know, a deterioration of the political party, and it has been very difficult for MM, uh, for you for need to rise. But uh, we come to our own situation, the movement for multi-party democracy. Uh, President Rupia Banda, who was the last one who led the party to that loss, uh, stepped aside and resigned. And um, when an election, another election was approaching after President Saturday, uh, President, the former president decided to come back, uh, but coming back to a party which already had a democratically elected president, uh, decided to work with um, the systems that he left to oust 
the president that was in this case myself, and they succeeded in ousting, you know, removing me out of power so that President Piabanda can come back. And um, when we went to court, we won the election, but that destabilization injured the political party. The Zambians wanted to move on and they were not patient enough to wait for us to solve our problems, but you know, they wanted to move on to something that is less dramatic. So that's how come the UPND, I mean the PF under Michael Sata won the election. Uh, and uh, and beat us uh, because or, or rather no 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 I've yeah. gone ahead of myself to understand what I'm saying yeah, yeah. so now we have the UPND uh, that has taken over after PF lost the election mm. and uh, the same thing is repeating itself uh, we are seeing that uh, the former president uh, uh, President Lungu has indicated that he he has decided to come back into politics it's no rocket science the same thing that happened to UNIP the same thing that happened to MMD is definitely going to happen to uh, you know, the, the PF. That's just the way it is. But that is one thing that has really, the, the internal problems are the ones that have caused uh, that these former ruling parties are not able to perform well uh, to retain power in the manner that it happens in other countries. Huh. Yeah, I think that's... Uh... Sorry, you can go ahead, Zengi, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, that was that was super uh, insightful. Now, from talking about parties that can't stay in power, let's just uh, brush on. If you can talk about this real quick, leaders that stay overstay, if you like, in power. All right. So we we've got the president of Equatorial Guinea, Teodoro Obiang, uh, and he has been in power for about forty years. Yoram Seveni, Paul Bia. Uh, you know, all of them have a single thing in common, and that's they have all been in power for 30 years at least, which is longer than the average age of an African today, which is 20. <laughs> you know, and um, so basically, we just want to we just want to figure out why is it that African leaders want to stay in power for so long, and why do they keep on changing their constitution and changing their terms for just to stay. In for as long as possible, considering, you know, they're just growing older and older in terms of the gap between the average African and the age of the leaders, you know. Uh, and the funny thing is many of them come in as a young revolutionary and then 50 years down the line, they're still there pirating the young revolutionary thing. So what is this problem that we have with long overstays of power by certain individuals? I used I used to answer that question differently when I was younger. I was just go out there and shoot at these uh, long-serving leaders. But I've now come to discover the problem is not necessarily the length of time they stay in office. The failure of African governance and leadership is in the failure of the leaders to unselfishly provide leadership and provide for the citizens that voted for them. Zambia and Africa is not the only area that has had long-serving leaders. And now we have made it an African problem. I mean, look at the United Kingdom. We had Margaret Thatcher stayed there for a long time. The Queen herself stayed there for some 96 years. I mean, not 96 years, 70-something years. Then we have also, you know, the German Chancellor, um, you know, who stayed there. They, they don't have that kind of limits. And so it's not really necessarily the length of time, but it's failure to govern. So even if you govern for four, five years, according to the constitution, and you don't have the, you know, the, the love of the people you govern at heart, even the two years is too much, even the three years is too much. Now, let me come to your concern. Uh, the constitution says five years. 
um, our position is that once the constitution prescribes the period of time, uh, I think that presidents must, you know, uh, respect that. And we take great issue with those presidents that want to extend their tenure just in order for them to remain in power without improving their countries, just for the sake of them being called president uh, for, for the entire life that they live on this earth. So we think it's wrong, but time has come for us now to move our attention from just the tenures to the quality of leadership in Africa. And also the respect of constitutional democracy in terms of what we agree on as a people. If we say it's five years, let's all agree that it's five years. If a need comes to increase that time, let it be the decision of the Zambian people or the people of that particular country. Because they have they made the, the decision for five years, they can make the decision for seven years, they can make the decision for six years like in Liberia, they can make a decision for 20 years, but as long as it's a decision by the people, we do not have a problem with that. But we do have a problem with leaders that are really destroying their countries, and on the other hand, want to extend their tenure in office. And Africa must address this issue as quickly as possible, looking at the quality of leadership on our continent. Yeah, yeah, that's a very that's an interesting angle. You know, it's more so on the content of their leadership and governance rather than how long, for example, they empower. And I think that argument could be probably a very good uh, sort of justification for Paul Kagame's presidency. Although even he is quite a polarizing <laughs> figure to some people. But um, you know, uh, I think um, now that we're talking about overstays and the quality of leadership. Perhaps we can talk about corruption and greed. You know, Mobutu Sesseko is famous for his kleptocratic style, his beautiful mansions and palaces in the middle of forests, and flying in the Concorde to deliver pink champagne from France, uh, whilst you know you have people in desperate poverty. Uh, so, according to the UN, Africa loses about fifty billion dollars a year in illicit financial flows. How accurate is this caricature of a corrupt African ruler? Is this an African problem? Is there something wrong with the way our politics is designed or our politicians are designed? What is this uh, corruption problem that we seem to have and we can't really get over? Well, this is, you know, Zenga, this is very limited time to deal with such a huge subject. But let me, let me first of all, start with uh, some of the people that, you know, you've mentioned Mobutu Seseko. The Bible says something about war is a nation that is led by a slave or somebody that has just come from a place of poverty, deprivation, and given the opportunity to have power. Um, and a lot of people cannot handle power. For the first time, they are seeing money they have never seen in their lives, and uh, they fail to govern. It's just a human uh, problem of being corrupted uh, by too much power and too much money. And uh, I think that um, it has been a problem not only for Africa, but it's a global problem. This issue of corruption uh, by these leaders has become you know, unbearable in most parts of the world. So I think for us, the reason I got involved in the political process was under the suggestion of, of saying, is it possible that we change the narrative that in order for 
somebody to be a politician, he has to be a crook. He has to be corrupt. He has to be a thief. And uh, that's what a politician should look like. I got into politics to challenge that status quo, that you can be a pastor who believes in the values of God, love, fairness, and justice, and lead the country where equitable delivery of goods and services to the citizens of that country becomes a priority, where that they, you don't only favor those people who look like you, who speak your language, but you make sure you provide goods and services for all citizens, regardless of their tribe, their color or their gender. And I think we're able to achieve that. But there's a problem on the African con continent in particular. We do not place premium on credible leadership. Mm -hmm. In fact, we hate credible leadership because it stands in our way of corruption, of getting things through corrupt means. So the weaker the president they put in place, the better for them to steal. And therefore, Leaders that who hold morals are usually under attack and, you know, with assumed hatred against them because people want a, a free-for-all system where if you want to steal, you just go there and steal and there's no punishment for it. So I think that um, those statistics by the United Nations are correct. Mm -hmm. Africa has suffered. Uh, from, you know, siphoning money and resources from this continent, taking it to the Western world and starching it there for in few dictators that will never live long enough to spend that money. And uh, we need to interrogate that. But the African people must decide that when they go to the polls, they should not go to the polls with their bellies speaking. They should go to the polls with their hearts and their heads fully operational. Because if their heads are switched off because of some campaign songs and promises, we'll constantly face the same problem that we have faced year after year. As we move forward, I have been encouraging men and women of integrity to get involved in the political process so that they can start to offer quality leadership and leadership in fear of God. So basically for me, that will be my response and to agree with the United Nations that yes, there is that problem of uh, of corruption. I think um, that's a, sort of a good way to to end it. I think a call for integrity amongst um, African people, um, African youth, uh, because I think it shows how important um, that is, especially in developing or see at least seeing the countries that we want to uh, to to sort of see. Um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, I hope for our listeners, that was uh, a very good uh, show and that you would got to see what it's like, I guess, sort of lifting the veil behind uh, what occurs um, in, uh, in, in in African leadership. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know, Zeng, if you had any other points. Yeah, no, I mean, this has been, I, I think uh, Nathan was complaining that, Zenge, I know you like politics so much, so don't geek out on this with all of your questions. <laughs> but I've managed to <laughs> I've managed to squeeze in all the questions I wanted to ask, and pretty much the questions that people also had to ask, uh, because we, you know, people are very excited about this one, and you are an incredibly prominent figure in Zambian politics, and now, of course, in African electoral politics. So... Yeah, I think it's we've gone across almost every aspect, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of stuff to sit down and read about, and you know, there's lots of rabbit holes we can just end up in, but yeah, it's been an enormous uh, honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you.
I am an African.